Okay, that does it. Huh? Listen, how dare you say things like that about my friend Fozzie? This bear is one of the stars of the Muppet Show. He's loving and friendly. Uh, funny. Uh, he's dedicated, loyal, trustworthy. Funny. Uh, handsome, generous, sweet, gentle, charming. Funny. And very, very funny. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, what is life? Uh, I think my go-to answer is that it's but a dream, but I also watch a lot of Cowboy Bebop, so that is what it is. I never watched any Cowboy Bebop. Would I like it? Um, I think you would like the anime... The the live action is a whole separate conversation for us to have, but don't watch live action if you haven't watched the anime. The anime is like a, it's interesting because it's classic and it's basically anime canon. It's very atmospheric and it's very moody. So you, if you're going in expecting something like it's, it's got plenty of action, but if you're going in expecting a sort of a, a shonen balls to the wall series, that's not what you're going to find. It's very contemplative. As you know, I've watched very little anime, so I just, just interested. I, I know the name of it at least. This is a feed of Lunatic Daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, we'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Instagram and Facebook, lunaticdaring.com, where you can find our watch list, our bibliography, and our episodes. We're currently going through the Muppet Show two episodes at a time, but we are so close to the end. I, it's going to be weird to go back to that sort of season one weirdness where we're not following a consistent thing so much as we're hopping around. It's Yeah, it's going to be weird to like not have a Muppet show to watch yeah. on a Friday night. <laughs> it's going to be very strange. But uh, we're not there yet, though. We got some episodes to get through. Some big, big stars, too. This was a very big week. Next week's huge, too. But uh, all right, well, let's get started. Let's get started. It's the Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Johnny Cash. Uh, Johnny Cash. Your impression of Johnny Cash is? Um... My brother told me once that even though I don't like country music, he thinks that I just don't like modern country music and I would enjoy country music of the past. And Johnny Cash is one of those examples that he, he posts up. Um, I don't know if that's true. I think that's a fairly common sentiment. Hmm. I'm kind of that way. Even I know his name, despite not necessarily being in his target audience. J.R. Cash. From Dallas? Sorry. <laughs> not from... No, that's J.R. Ewing. It's J.R. Ewing. J.R. Cash. Was born February 26th, 1932 in Kingsland, Arkansas. He had three older siblings and three younger, putting him smack dab in the middle. His mother wanted to, wanted to name him John and his father wanted to call him Ray. So they compromised and got Jr. That's his official first name. Being born uh, in 1932 put you very much in the middle of the Great Depression and the Cash family was hit pretty hard. Jr. started working in the cotton fields when he was five. He and his family would sing songs to each other to pass the time while they worked. In 1944, Cash's older brother, Jack, was killed in a horrific accident. And let's just say that Walk Hard wasn't that far off. He enlisted in the Air Force in 1950, serving in a radio squadron in Landsberg, West Germany, there to intercept Soviet transmissions. While he was in Germany, he formed his first band, the Landsberg Barbarians, which is a terrible name. He was honor honorably discharged as a staff sergeant in 1954. When he joined the Air Force, he was forced to pick a name. They didn't like J.R., so he went with John R. Cash. After his time in the Air Force was up, John Cash got married to a woman named Vivian and moved to Memphis, Tennessee, where he sold home appliances. Eventually, he got his break when auditioning for the famous Sun Records in 1955. His first two singles for them, Hey Porter and Cry Cry Cry, came out and were hits with country listeners. When he signed with Sun Records, he officially started going by Johnny Cash. His second record, Folsom Prison Blues, made the country top five. I Walked the Line topped the country charts and even crossed over into the pop charts. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds Because you're mine, I walk the line In 1958, Cash left Sun Records and signed with Columbia, who he would be with for decades. In the late 50s, when everything was taking off for him, Johnny started drinking a lot and started using amphetamines and barbiturates. He quickly became addicted and would fight this 
for most of his life. In the 60s, he toured with country western legends the Carter family and would eventually fall in love and marry their daughter, June. One of his most famous songs, Ring of Fire, was actually written by June. I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire The pair would perform together a lot, the highlight usually being the infidelity duet Jackson, which we will hear a little bit later tonight. Their recording of it won them a Grammy. Cash was arrested several times, trespassing, illegal possession of prescription drugs, but he never served more than a night in jail. After another legal incident in Georgia involving pills in a car crash, Johnny, with the help of June, got sober. It had actually been a it was actually a prerequisite for them to get married. It's for him getting sober. Cash would relapse in 1977 and attend the Betty Ford Clinic, as well as several other treatment centers all the way through to 1992. But back to the music. In the late 50s, Johnny started playing concerts in prisons. These performances led to two of the most successful, two of his most successful albums, Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison and Johnny Cash at San Quentin. The San Quentin album featured his recording of Shel Silverstein's A Boy Named Sue, which became a crossover hit. He said, now you just fought one hell of a fight, and I know you hate me and you got the right to kill me now, and I wouldn't blame you if you do. But you ought to thank me before I die for the gravel in your guts and the spit in the eye, because I'm the son of a bitch that named you Sue. Yeah, well, what could I do? What could I do? I got all choked up and I threw down my gun, called him a paw and he called me a son, and I come away with a different point of view. And I think about him now and then, every time I try and every time I win. And if I ever have a son, I think I'm gonna name him Bill or George, any damn thing but Sue. I still ain't So, uh, Nick, guess what happened in 1969? Is that when Chris Christopherson crashed his helicopter on his lawn? No, it's when Johnny Cash got his own variety show. <laughs> oh. um, guests included Linda Ronstadt and her very first TV performance, Neil Young, Louis Armstrong, Kenny Rogers, Ray Charles, Joni Mitchell, and Bob Dylan, who, whom he would later record a duet with on the latter's album, Nashville Skyline. So, the, the Johnny Cash show, because who doesn't get their own show? Everyone back then got their own show. Around this time, he met Chris Christopherson. So you, your memory's pretty good. Uh, go back to our episode on him to hear that story, but it, to jog your memory, involved a helicopter. Cash was famous for wearing all black in contrast with the rhinestones and shit the other country stars wore. He was dubbed the man in black early in his career and it stuck for the rest of his life. He would later write a song about it in which he explained that he wore black in solidarity with the people, with oppressed people all around the world. Well, you wonder why I always dress in black Why you never see bright colors on my back And why does my appearance always have a somber tone Well, there's a reason for the things that I have on I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down Living in the hopeless hungry side of town and i wear it for the prisoner who has long paid for his crime but still is there because he's a victim of the time he was friends with every u.s president starting with nixon growing especially close to jimmy carter who may not be with us by the time this comes out to whom june was distantly related when nixon tried to tell johnny what to sing at his first white house appearance cash said no thanks and picked his own songs, feeling that Nixon's choices were, were quote, anti-hippie and anti-black. He did some acting roles, including playing abolitionist John Brown in the 1985 Civil War miniseries North and South. He and June also had recurring roles on Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, and I had no idea that that had happened. He was also the voice of a space coyote in a very famous episode of The Simpsons. In the mid-80s, he joined up with Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, and Helicopter Boy to form the supergroup The Highwaymen, who released three albums. In the 90s, he teamed with legendary producer Rick Rubin to make The American Recordings, a collection of contemporary songs picked by Rubin for Johnny to sing. The more famous songs that come out of this session, the more famous songs that come out of these sessions were his versions of Nine Inch Nails Hurt, Soundgarden's Rusty Cage, and U2's One. We're one, but we're not the same. 
where we hurt each other and we're doing it again you say love is a temple love a higher law love is a temple love the higher law you ask me to enter but then you make me crawl and i can't be holding on to what you've got Johnny fell ill in 1977 with autonomic neuropathy associated with diabetes and the illness forced him to stop touring. He was a very religious cat. He even wrote a Christian novel, was a huge champion of Native Native American causes. He obviously had an affinity and empathy for incarcerated people that most people lack. June Carter died on May 15th, 2003 at the age of 71. June had told Johnny to keep working, so he recorded another 60 songs in the next few months, but he couldn't hold out. Losing June had been too much. He was in a wheelchair for those last sessions. Johnny Cash died on September 12th, 2003, also at the age of 71, less than four months after his wife. He had five children, including country singer Roseanne Cash. He's interred at Hendersonville Memorial Gardens outside of Nashville. This has been a piss poor bio of Johnny Cash. Go read a book. Or if you want the cliff notes, go watch the movie. Uh, I Walked the Line with Reese Witherspoon and Joaquin Phoenix. It'll give you the gist. Of it. That's Johnny Cash. I was talking to my brother. And we, were, we were trying to figure out who the most famous guest star The Muppet Show ever had was. That's rough. He's up there. He's definitely up there, but that's... Like pure star caliber, pure legendary status caliber. I feel like he's definitely top five. He's one of the big ones. Muppet Show episode number 521 with special guest star Johnny Cash. Produced August 1980. Released February 1981. This episode has a cultural content warning. Gee, I wonder why. I hold my comment. We'll see, we'll watch out for any red flags. Maybe if they're interlaced with glue. Hi, Pop. Uh, who's that? I'm Johnny Cash. I sing and play a little guitar. How about that Johnny Cash is on the radio? I'm not on the radio. What? I can't hear you. Why don't you turn the volume up? Oh, okay. Can you hear better now? Yeah. It's like he's right here in the room with me. Johnny's got this real relaxed, like... He just kind of, I like the fact that he's like the biggest country star that ever lived at this point. And he comes, he's looking kind of schlubby in this blue shirt. So there's stories, especially from the 60s and 70s, of a lot of different people just sort of accidentally walking into into things. Like, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was Hendrix's original agent. And he originally bumped into Hendrix at a hotel after he'd been fired. And Hendrix, being kind of racist, thought, oh, you're Jewish, you can handle my accounting. And the thing is, if that guy had gone left instead of right, his life would have been on an entirely different course. And I don't, that probably still happens today, today but I don't think it happens the way it did back then. Slight tangent. <laughs> um, so, so Johnny's here for the episode. I don't know. I was just, I was just, uh, I was taken about how kind of relaxed and casual he was coming backstage. Like I thought he'd be all dressed up. He's not even wearing black. It, it really feels like it's his night off. It really does. <laughs> It really does. He's not even wearing black. He's wearing this like blue long sleeve button down shirt. Felt kind of weird. He's a blue collar man. And then he does this little like mugging view to the audience like uh, to the audience. And I was just like, that is so goofy. We have the Muppet Show theme. A duck bites Gonzo on the nose. Now, listen, I know it's no chicken, but you know, I feel like Gonzo just discovered a new kink. Yeah, yeah exactly. I was going to say, like, I think he was okay with this one. <laughs> he was okay with this one. As long as, you know, it's, you know, it's chicken adjacent. Kermit comes out to announce that the show is going to be broadcast over this radio station, WHOG, W Hog, country radio station, and that they're going to be simultaneously broadcasting the, the Johnny Cash show um, while the Muppets are doing their show. This is not going to go well. Did this, or we're not there yet, but I just started thinking of Lemmy immediately. From Motorhead? Yeah. Okay. You'll, we'll get to oh. that in a little bit. Oh, we'll get to him. We'll get Just to a him. Tiny reference. Yeah, we'll get to him. So uh, Kermit comes out. He's dressed up in a cowboy outfit, and um, he explains that that they're going to be recording uh, the show. He, we also meet a character named Billy Boy, who's the stagehand. I think it's a Steve Whitmire character, who's kind of a pimply faced teen 
straight out of the Simpsons who, who is playing the stagehand. But uh, yeah, the, the backstage story is a, a country radio station is broadcasting tonight's show and they kind of get in the way for our opening number. Now, it's important. One, one thing that is going to be that it's going to be both interesting and damning for this episode is that all of the on set stuff takes place on one set. All the on stage stuff takes place in one set. There's no scenery changes. There's backstage stuff and there's on stage stuff, but the on stage stuff has the same background for the entire time. And we'll get to why in a second why that's a problem. Uh, we have our opening number. A group of hillbillies sing a song called The Martins and the Coys, which is kind of, I guess that's kind of like the Hatfields and, and McCoys. Yeah, I mean, you've got the old trope of the uh, the family feud between, or especially in an American context, I think that started to get really prominent around the time Huck Finn came out because there was a, an entire chapter dedicated to that. So it ends up with, um, it's a very American sketch. It's got a lot of gunfire. <laughs> And, and you have these two warring hillbillies is probably too strong of a word. These two warring clans, and uh, they're singing a song about it. But it it kind of goes up in smoke uh, when when they just can't stop shooting at each other. Uh, it was it was okay. Yeah. It was okay. So the entire backstage area has been taken over by this radio station. There's equipment everywhere or whatever. And Kermit meets. And this is the guy you're talking about. Lemmy is played by Pedro Pascal. Lemmy is paid by Pedro Pascal. That's not that's, that's that's not bad. That's not bad. We meet big tiny tall saddle. Big tiny tall saddle, who is the um, I guess the MC of the radio show. Howdy, howdy, frogs and neighbors! And here he is, big tiny tall saddle here, up talking at you. <laughs> okay, Billy boy, y'all saddled up. Let's climb aboard old paint and get this here roundup a going. Oh, you betcha, big tiny. Uh, translate for me. Does that mean you're about to broadcast? Yeah. Okay, I'll introduce Johnny Cash. Who's that little green feller? Well, I think he's called Gonzo the Frog. Tiny's going to be a little bit of a pain in the ass. Or Tiny's going to be a big pain in the ass. Tall pain in the ass. But Tiny's going to kind of take over the show backstage. So uh, Kermit comes out to introduce Johnny. And uh, Tiny comes with him. And they kind of introduce him at the same time. Johnny then comes out, he's on the same set, and he sings a song called Riders in the Sky, also known as Ghost Riders in the Sky. Here we get to the cultural content warning. The set is basically the interior of a barn, and in that barn on the wall in the back are hang two flags. One is an American flag, and one is a Confederate flag. Now, I don't, I don't think we're here to adjudicate the... We could just say we probably agree with the content warning here. For a number of reasons, I would... I would say. Obviously, the Confederate flag is a symbol of treason and hatred and slavery and racism and all those things that it is. And it absolutely is that. It was also, unfortunately, the face of country music for a long time. I mean, I grew up watching the Dukes of Hazard, and it was it was it wasn't it was no no big thing that they had the their car was called the General Lee. That their car was called the General Lee, and that the and that the top of the car was Dixie had the Dixie flag on it never batted an eye as a kid you know gonna be honest though the confederate flag wasn't really what threw me in this particular scene i know i know we'll get to it <laughs> we'll get to it so uh so but just you know just to get that out there yes through the entire episode there's going to be a confederate flag in the background so johnny sings uh writers in the sky and um he gets interrupted by gonzo writing some cows uh, coming in as an outlaw, he does that once, and then uh, he does it again at the end of the song. He 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 comes back in with on riding the cows, him and his chickens are riding the cows like outlaws. But the second time he comes back in while Johnny's singing. Now remember, this song is actually it's called Riders in the Sky, but it's actually like parentheses Ghost Riders in the Sky, and that's what the chorus actually says. It says Ghost Riders in the Sky. But Gonzo and the chickens come out, and yes, they're wearing white sheets. You have a comment. I just... So the thing is, there are levels to this. First, they're on cowback, I guess, wearing sheets in front of a confederate flag. It's. I don't think that that's necessarily even something that they were intending to evoke. It might have been an absent-minded thing, just giving a benefit of the doubt. But it does, like... Yes. I think the thing that sort of... My thought in the moment was, A, did Gonzo just join the clan, but B... I was really happy it was Gonzo and not Kermit, and I don't know what... I, I think just because Kermit is more associated with Jim and with being in the South, 
Right. Because Gonzo's just a weird performance artist, and this could have been Andy Warhol doing something weird. But I actually think I said I think the the sheets are a reference to the Ghost Riders, but I had the same thought that you had. So that it, it feels it feels unfortunate. I don't I don't think I, I, you're right. I don't think it's intentional. I don't think it's what they're trying to evoke. But it it does feel unfortunate in this moment with the rebel flag back there. I mean, you'll kind of get. Not to say you get used to the rebel flag, but it's going to be there the whole time. This is paired up with this image of people, yeah, with white sheets over their faces. It's kind of tough to... to. Uh, I like the song. I do like the song. I'm a big fan of his voice, but uh, it's, a, it's a hard image to shake. So Kermit has completely lost any kind of uh, control over the show at this point. Big Tiny is taken over. He does this terrible thing with Kermit. He told he asked Kermit if he'd ever been in a frog jumping contest, which struck me as racist. And then he said, then he took like a, was it a bucket full of hot marbles? Yeah. And poured it on the floor to make Kermit jump. Seemed unnecessarily cruel. That does sort of seem to be a shtick though. Backstage, we get a little confirmation that Johnny knows Tiny Tisdale. Tisdale, tiny tall saddle calls him. He calls him tough as a 25 cent steak, which I guess I know what that means. I I get that. But I think the thing that I love about that line is it's one of those ones that just gets better as inflation goes (laughs) like your 25 cent steak at this point is just charcoal. So uh, we get our UK spot. Um, New Zealand. I don't think we've seen him in a while. Teams up with the Gills brothers who we've seen before to sing good night sardine. Um, now this is a, a satire, a weird al- a, al- a weird Al Yankovization. Yeah, I'm not repeating that, but that sounds right. Of Goodnight Irene, the American folktale folk song, but it's done with but but all but imagine Goodnight Irene, but it's all replaced with fish puns. Uh, but I thought it was pretty funny. It was a good combination, though. I thought Gills Brothers, New Zealand, yeah, fish. It was, you know, yeah, it was a nice. Nice put in. Hadn't seen him in a little while. He doesn't throw any fish. I think in this particular one, that probably would have gone over poorly. And they have him outnumbered. Now, here's the number that I'm glad my kids couldn't watch this episode tonight. Because they were out. Just because it's horrible. Johnny comes back into the set and Rolf is at the piano. And Rolf asks if he can accompany accompany him on his next song. And he's like, "Ah, I don't think you should do that. And he's like, no, it's fine. That's what I'm here for. I'll, you know, tell me the key and I'll play it and we'll do this. He's okay. I warned you. And Cash sings a song called Dirty Old Egg Sucking Dog. A dog in a song in which he both threatens to bash a dog's skull in and to shoot one. Well, he's not very handsome to look at. Oh, he's shaggy and he eats like a hog. And he's always killing my chicken. Who's that? That dirty old egg sucking dog. <laughs> Here comes the chorus now. Egg sucking dog. This is terrible. I'm gonna stomp your head in the ground. Oh no! If you don't stay out of my hen house, you dirty old egg-sucking hound. Yeah, but that's a lie. I never touched a chicken in my life. I can't stand them. They're nasty, scrawny old thing. I am so glad my kids didn't hear this song. This is an awful song about abusing a dog. <laughs> about an awful dog. Yeah. Um... <laughs> It absolutely, like, there's no two ways about it. It absolutely is. There is a part of me that grew up with, like, I I guess my first forays into comedy were things like In Living Color, which I probably shouldn't have been watching as a toddler. But that sort of dark humor, mean-spirited, but not hateful thing. The fact that he was smiling at Rolf the entire time, didn't. it didn't feel like he was actually actively seeking out to him. He just was sending out, which, you know, him making him uncomfortable is still not cool, but... I, I enjoyed it. I just thought, oh, man, my kids would just... My kids would hate him forever. Hmm. I would never get my kids to like a Johnny Cash song for their entire lives if they heard him sing this. And they because One, because they love dogs, but two, they love Rolf. It's hard not to love Rolf. Rolf's amazing. And Rolf's reactions to the whole thing are great. He's like, oh, no, no, don't do that. No. I don't even like chickens. That's Gonzo's thing. Kermit's about to introduce Fozzie. And Tiny comes in and lets us know that he has his own comedian, his nephew, 
uh, that is the comedian for W H O G, named guy named Wally Whoopi, and that he's going to come out. And and Kermit's like, no, 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 Fozzie's our comedian, and there's a whole hubbubaloo, and two comedians get put out on stage at the same time: Fozzie Bear and Wally Whoopi, who is a purple whatnot. Uh, I do believe. Uh, uh, puppeteered by Jim Henson. You folks watching on radio won't believe this, but I am standing next to a wild bear. Oh, no, 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 sir. I'm not a wild, well, I mean, I'm a bear, but, but I'm not wild. Oh, listen, I don't believe you. I'm not wild about bears either. <laughs> I, I, I'm a comedian. A comedian. Do yes. you know the most important thing about being a comedian? No, what's the most important Timing. Thing? <laughs> Let's hear one of your jokes, comedian. Oh, all right. <clears throat> <clears throat> See, this walrus, he goes into the theater. Hey, and all you're sudden... not nervous, are you? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. A uh, little? Wa- Why, folks, he's as nervous as a frog on a freeway with his hopper busted. <laughs> did you want to punch this one? <laughs> yeah. Like you did the bear? It, the thing is, the... The distaste for the bear was much faster and much more visceral. It's it's rough to see them like this particular kind of meanness to Fozzie. Because if you're mean to Fozzie in general, whatever. But if you move into his space, because the stand-up bit is his bit, and you're just it it's too much. It's it's a lot. I mean, this guy's you know I I yeah he's an asshole. <laughs> yeah, Jim and Frank are awesome though. Hmm. And the way they play this, that their timing is great uh, in the in the way they go back and forth. But uh, yeah, you want to strangle this Wally Whoopi, like. It, it, but yeah, it reminded me of the time that they had that other other comedy bear. I don't even remember his name. I like my odds with all, Wally Whoopi a little bit better than fighting the bear. But so Kermit, this doesn't. So this this you know shellacking of Fozzie does not sit well with Kermit, despite the fact that he lets Fozzie get shellacked all the time. But it's different when he does it. Yeah, but he lets Statler and Waldorf do it too. But I guess they're part of the family too. But he's had enough of 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 uh, Big Tiny, and he stands up to him. And he, there's my favorite moment in the entire episode when Kermit is telling, trying to tell Big Tiny's like uh, when he's telling Big Tiny, he's like, "Fozzie is is our friend, and he's kind, and he's sweet, and he's loving." And Fozzie's behind the curtain, and he's like, "And funny." And Kermit's like, <laughs> "And so- he's creative, and he's this, and he's this, and he's this." And then Fozzie goes. And funny. And then finally at the end, Kermit goes, and yes, very, very funny. <laughs> but Kermit keeps using as many adjectives as he can to avoid saying the word funny. Really good. <laughs> it, was, it was really good follow-up. So then Scooter comes in, uh, Scooter X Machina, and he comes in and tells Tiny, because Tiny's about to do some physical harm to Kermit, and I don't think Kermit stands a chance. I, I think Kermit can canonically throw down. Now, I don't know... I feel like that's the night that Kermit gets fired, though. If he if he taps into that part of his inner frog, I think the thing I think Muppet Show Kermit has shown to be a little less of a fighter. But they're about they're about to scuffle, and Scooter comes in and lets Tiny know that some kids are out back letting the air out of his horse, which is utter nonsense. Or Scooter just killed a horse. <laughs> <laughs> or Scooter just killed a horse. Yeah, like, that's full on mob speak. Little Tiny's going to find a horse head in his bed. <laughs> just let the air out of his horse. Yeah. Yeah. Scooter might've killed a horse, um, but that gets tiny to leave. And the Beauregard locks the door behind him and he's, he's gone. Bo finally does something right. So then we get our final number. Everything's back to normal. The radio people are gone. We're just going to have our final number. And we get a, a little bit of a medley by Mr. Cash. We have a nice little bit where Kermit thanks Scooter for getting tiny off the stage. And he's like, he's like, oh, I don't need praise, boss, but I could use some cash. <laughs> and Kermit's like, yes, we could all use know. some cash. Johnny Cash. <laughs> and you, Scooter's like, oh, that's not what I meant. <laughs> and then uh, Johnny comes out to sing his final two songs. I guess it's like a medley. Um, uh, Orange Blossom Special. And um, he starts off singing Orange Blossom Special. <laughs> Look yonder coming Coming down that railroad track Look yonder coming Coming down that railroad track That's that orange blossom special Bringing my baby back Abby 
which is one of his early hits um, with Lubbock Lou and the Jug Huggers. And then it transitions into, and then, and then did you, the man can blow some harmonica. I feel like that's a prerequisite for being any sort of a country star at this point in time. Not to say yeah. that it's not impressive, but. But did you see him blow two harmonicas? That is impressive. He had two of them. That was, that was fancy stuff. Um, so Johnny does some harmonica work and then Piggy comes out dressed up like a cowgirl and her and Johnny sing Jackson. We got married in a fever, hotter than a pepper's sprout. We've been talking about Jackson ever since the fire went out. I'm going to Jackson. I'm going to mess around. Honey, I'm going to Jackson. Look out, Jackson Town. Which is surprising in a way because he really only ever did that song with June, with his wife. And so for him to duet with it, even even if it's just a little bit of the song, even if it's just on The Muppet Show, it was still kind of a big deal to hear him do that song with somebody else. There's another thing that sort of stuck out because this, I think this is the first time we see Piggy all episode. Yes. Kind of feels like an afterthought here. Um, I don't know. They bring her in. I mean, it's the right time to bring her in. As far as like for the number, she's still a performer on the show and she's the closest they got to a June Carter on the show. I guess they could have brought in Annie Sue. No, Piggy would have killed her. Got to get your star in there somehow. And then it goes back to uh, Orange Blossom special. And as, as, as much as I enjoy this number, I just can't <laughs> just my eye just keeps going back to the flag, the, the flag in the background the whole time. And, and, and I should. I love I love Jackson. I love Piggy. I love the idea of him. Singing it with Piggy, uh, I, I like the number, but it's just just a sad. Not I, I hate. I would like to call it a sad remnant, but it's not enough of a remnant. So we come to our closing. Say goodnight. And, um, Johnny is uh, chilling on stage still, and Big Tiny runs back in to borrow a bicycle pump to fill up his horse. So maybe Scooter didn't. Or Big Tiny is significantly more deranged than we thought. It just doesn't understand equiline anatomy. I don't know enough about taxidermy to to see whether he would need a, an air pump. But uh, yeah, he's going to go borrow a bicycle pump to, to reinflate his horse. Um, however that works. And we say goodbye to Johnny Cash. Hard episode to judge. It's so... With this podcast, especially given that these are these episodes are around forty years old, this doesn't no part of this episode outside of maybe the song directed at Ralph felt hateful, and that is sort of our barometer for like the the Spike Milligan episode is always going to be that weirdly weirdly litmus test, yeah, but everything else has effectively fallen short of that. I don't think this is a bad episode. It's just... I think it's pretty good. Yeah. Through a modern cultural lens, some things are going to feel a little bit itchy. And it, and it just it's just unfortunate. And, it, and it's unfortunate that for so long, that flag came to mean a lot of things to a lot of people. And they lost, uh, in my opinion, growing up with it being everywhere, they lost sight of what it really... Okay. Some people lost sight of what it really means. What it was really about. Not everybody, but some people lost sight of that. If you look at any flag, you're going to see some sort of that. But Well, it's also like in the 70s, there were punk acts who wore swastikas. Hmm. Right? They weren't Nazis. They were trying to be as anti as possible. And... By and and what is the worst thing you could possibly be? What is the most anti you can be? Be a, be a Nazi. 
And there's a little bit of that with the rebel flag. It's like, how rebellious can you be? How independent can you be? You know, despite the fact that, you know, it is what it means. It, it, there's, there's that pride in it of saying, you know, how independent can you be? This is as, this is as rebel as you can get is flying this flag. You know, I think both ideas are wrongheaded, but to me, they're very similar, very similar mentalities. All right, I have a I have an admission to make. What's that? I find drummers boring. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Like not not like super boring. Like I, it's definitely my least favorite of a rock band's instruments. Oh, why? Drummers I don't are so know. important. Oh no, I'm not saying they're not important, but that's their problem. They're functional to me, and uh, I've just never like the drum solos when I go to the bathroom at like a rock show. But that's only because I've seen like Metallica drum solos and those go on forever. At least they used to till he got old. I'm sure they're a lot shorter now. But no, it's just I just don't I just don't get into drums as a solo instrument that that much. There there are exceptions, of course. According to this tonight's episode, we had on the world's best drummer. So tell me about Buddy Rich and is he the was he at least the world's best drummer? So the thing about Buddy Rich, and I had no idea who he was before he before I watched this episode, but it's been said many times, many, many times that MF Doom is your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. And I'm pretty sure that Buddy Rich is going to be your favorite drummer's favorite drummer. The man could play. The man could play very well to the extent that I'm kind of amazed that I didn't actually know anything about him before this episode, but we can fix that right now. Buddy Rich was born September 30th, 1917, in Brooklyn, New York, to Bess Skolnick and Robert Rich. Both of his parents performed vaudeville-type stuff. He is another one of our guest stars that was surrounded by the entertainment industry from the time that he was very young. And like a good number of our other guest stars, he was part of his parents' act when he was a toddler. But he also spent a lot of time in the orchestra pit trying to get drumsticks. So the inclination to drum had been there basically from the start. He was on Broadway by age four as Baby Traps the Drum Wonder, playing the Stars and Stripes forever. When he became a teenager, he was already leading a band. This guy was, it's kind of amazing just how how fast this, this moves, but he was touring the US and Australia. At 15 years old, he was the second highest paid child entertainer behind Jackie Coogan. I have no idea who Jackie Coogan is, but I'm sure that means something to someone. It does. In the late 30s, he joined a number of big bands led by Bunny Berrigan and Artie Shaw. Uh, He also taught Mel Brooks to play drums for about six months. I didn't know Mel Brooks played the drums, but then again, he only got taught by Buddy Rich for about six months. Uh, 21 years old, he has his first major recording with the Vic Schwinn, and please forgive me if I mispronounce that, orchestra. 1942, he joins the Marine Corps. I want to see a biopic on this guy, specifically because... Well, I feel like it might move at a pretty steady clip. He never saw combat, but he did serve as a judo instructor. (laughs) As a judo instructor? Here's the thing. We were at war with Japan. I don't know just how much judo had made it to the U.S. (laughs) during the Depression, right? Maybe he picked something up in Australia. I don't know. But he was was a judo instructor. he was discharged in 1944 for medical reasons, uh, at which point he came back to playing music. And he was playing in a number of bands and often featuring Frank Sinatra on vocals. Those two would end up having a long and at times rocky relationship because, well, both men were willful. 1950s, he was a frequent guest on the Steve Allen show. Um, and... He's, he was on the Johnny Carson show a lot as well, and he was a lifelong friend with Johnny. 1953, or excuse me, April 24th, 1953, he married Marie Allison. They would remain married for the rest of his life. A year later, his daughter Kathy was born, and he, he kept leading bands and playing in bands and just sort of, he was that, that drummer in that time period that you just knew. Buddy Rich was synonymous with drums. 
yes, you had other jazz players like Art Blakey and things like that. And those are absolutely important to mention as well. But he also had a couple of, we'll call them missteps. March 1968, he's convicted of failing to report 50 grand of income in 1961. Who hasn't done that? There's a Wesley Snipes joke that I can't quite articulate right now, and it's going to bother me for the rest of the night. Uh, he receives five years probation, and he was fined 2500 and ordered to pay the IRS 40000 The following year, a tax lien was placed on him for $141,606 in back taxes. He would file for bankruptcy in the next month. And the IRS would also seize his home in Vegas. Uh, in the time in between, he continues playing and doing a lot of different performances with different groups. He would play with Sinatra a lot. 1981, he would be featured on The Muppet Show. 1987, March of 1987, while he was on tour, he would be hospitalized due to paralysis that affected his left side. The doctors thought it was a stroke, but they found a brain tumor a little while later. And they removed it successfully, and Buddy would continue to re receive daily chemo treatments. April of that year, he died of a respiratory and cardiac failure after a treatment related to the tumor. I don't really know how to follow that. He was, like, I, after watching the episode, I went back and looked up a, a good number of his recordings. He's a phenomenal drummer. And we see that on the episode, but that's just like the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Muppet Show, 522, featuring guest star Buddy Rich. It was produced between August 14th and August 16th of 1980. It would premiere in the UK on February 15th of the following year, and it would make it stateside May 16th, 1981. We get to our cold opening, and Buddy comes in, and the, the lights are flickering, which is going to be our backstage story throughout the episode. Uh, Pops lets him know that there's a problem with the electricity, but I had, again, keeping in mind that I watched the episodes before I do the bios and I had no concept of who Buddy Rich was. We start with an electric chair joke, which is dark. It is dark. In sense of humor. So I was already kind of inclined to like him at this point. We go through the Muppet Show theme when Gonzo blows the trumpet. So look, the arm that comes out and punches Gonzo, because a arm with a boxing glove punches Gonzo, but it looks like it belongs to Cookie Monster. And I just want to find out that there's some sort of like a weird Norm McDonald Chris Catan rivalry between Gonzo and Cookie Monster. It's probably not the case. Probably not. But that fist came out pretty quick. Kermit comes out to introduce the show and the lights go out again. Um, and they flicker back on and they go off. And he asks Scooter what's going on and Scooter's like, uh, Scooter? Yeah, boss? What happened to the lights? They went out. <laughs> oh, good. Helpful. But uh, we have the perfect opening number four an episode that struggles with the lights staying on we've this got is adorable it's great it's so good it's adorable Fozzie's in a i want to call it a cabbage patch and i don't think it's a cabbage patch but he's like in a garden he's in a garden a bunch of other muppets that are dressed up as flowers including scooter including singing, floyd <laughs> including floyd including lou and gonzo but floyd how the hell did he get roped into that Floyd loves the Beatles. This isn't the first time that he's done something with the Beatles song, but they sing Good Day Sunshine. Good Day Sunshine. Good Day Sunshine. I need to laugh, and when the sun is out, I've got something I can laugh about. I feel good, ah, in a special way. I'm in love, and it's a sunny day up until the lights go out again at which point there's this great moment of no one knowing what it, where anyone else is and constantly bumping into each other and Kermit comes out and just sort of tells them to improvise at which point they shift to dancing in the dark which I thought was a missed opportunity they're handing out flashlights and 
I'm 90% sure that Flashlight by Parliament was out by now. So they, I'm always going to want to hear a P-Funk song on The Muppet Show, and I know it's not going to happen. I know. Yeah, they never quite got there. Wouldn't it be funny if we get to Roger Moore, the very last episode, and like they do a Parliament song? Or Funk, oh, I would be so happy. I mean, to be fair, we've already had a song from The Wiz, so it's not impossible. It's just... It's true. It's true. Electric Mayhem seems perfectly suited to cover P-Funk. Statler and Waldorf are up in this their was, box. I was oh, sorry, say, but, this was so cute. It was. The way the way, was, Fozzie was, the way Fozzie was dancing during Good Day Sunshine, just, oh, Frank was killing it. Just, just, it was just adorable. It was, it was a nice opener, and it was also... It was bright and cheery at first. Yeah. It, that's what was so great about it. It was bright and cheery, and then it, in stark contrast to when the lights go down. We, we go to Statler and Waldorf, and they're wearing miners' helmets. I don't think those two have ever done a day of honest work in their lives. I can't imagine them being in a mine. They're they're problem solvers, Nick. I, I guess. Have you ever worn one of those things? There's no way the light's going to reach down to the stage. Um, <laughs> that's probably why they did it. <laughs> that's why they do it. I hadn't realized that. Backstage, Bo. Like <laughs> Bo, I, man. Yeah, I get that bows are handy, man, but also... Where did Bo learn his trade? We've got, we've seen a bunch of flashlights. He doesn't have a single flashlight up there. He's just sort of like fumbling around in the dark. And if you're fumbling around in the dark with a fuse box, you might get shocked. And he does. And the thing is, there's that moment where he just says, I think the fuse box bit me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which is just sort of like Forrest Gump saying something jumped up and bit me while he was running through the jungles of Vietnam. Like there's something weirdly innocent about that. Well, what's sadder is his next line. Kermit, I don't want to play with fuses anymore, okay? <laughs> You're like, oh. And he's like, and Kermit's like, it's okay, Bo. You don't have to. <laughs> oh. Poor Bo. Poor Bo, man, that sucks. But uh, yeah, they're still having power problems. We go to our Muppet News Flash, which is immaculate. It's just, it's immaculate. Haven't seen Harry in a long time. <laughs> we have. I'm pretty sure this is the remains of the candle that's usually sitting on Rolf's piano, but there's this little like stub of a piano right next to the Muppet newscaster. He asks for more light because he can't read the prompt, at which point Crazy Harry pops in with a big red candle that may or may not actually be a candle. It's not a candle. It's not a candle. <laughs> but the setup is perfect. As soon as he's able to read the paper, the triggers on there. Like I'm, I'm almost positive that Harry is the one that wrote that script that he was supposed to be reading off of. Yeah, it's right on cue. But this is just like this is an immaculate Muppet News sketch. The explosion went off right when it was supposed to. I'm going to be curious to see in the last two episodes if there's another Muppet News flash because they really blew up this desk. <laughs> we they recorded a lot of these out of order, so this might have been the last recorded one. But we'll see. Right, like. To me, like, this has got to be the last one because they screwed up. They messed up that desk. Oh, yeah. So we go back to the dressing room uh, where Kermit comes in to to see if he can work with with Buddy and the lights come back on. This was one of my favorite parts of this episode. And, like, I I was already kind of sold on Buddy, but seeing how he just sort of rolls with the entire situation and he just seems to be having fun. Kermit asks if he's ready for his number, and he's like, absolutely. He's like, cool, we'll get the band ready. He's like, I don't need a band. He's like, well, do you need drums? He's like, I don't need drums. And we've seen so many prima donnas on the show. And Buddy was actually kind of known to be someone for, or with a bit of a foul temper. But we've seen so many people on the show that just can't be bothered to to try to work a problem. And Buddy's just like, I can absolutely do that. This is fine. This is great. And he just, like... There are, mo- there are a lot of moments where he's just got the sticks drumming on sticks and then he'll play on like any surface that's available. There's a great section where he drums on Dr. Bunsen Honeydew's head and it gets a specific like hollow melon tone. And then he goes to Beaker. He makes it up to the stage. He's drumming on every fixture. And I'm, I don't know if I'm selling it well, but it's, it's a fun little bit. Yeah. He works his way from the, he plays everything in his dressing room and then he works his way down all the way to the stage. It made me nostalgic for middle school because any kid with a mechanical pencil and like those those agenda books that had the Velcro cover, not Velcro, but like the weird laminated covers would just drum in the lunchroom a lot, which would piss off the teachers, but we thought it was great. 
but yeah, this is just, it's a fun little musical bit. And you can tell that he's, he's having a lot of fun with it. Poor Bo. <laughs> we, we go, or so, sorry, I, I cut that short. Buddy makes it out on stage and then the lights go out again and Scooter's backstage and Bo has got a light bulb in his mouth, which works because apparently according to this particular kind of cargo cult science, when Bo got shocked by the fuse box, he became electrically charged. And because he's electrically charged, if you put a light bulb in his mouth, it lights up. Well, yeah, Scooter, well, Scooter put it there. Because he's trying to find a work, he's trying to come come up with workarounds for for the lights and for the candles and everything. And so, one of his ideas was put a bright bulb in Bo's mouth. As soon as because it's Bo, he's as soon as he opens his mouth, it just falls out, and everyone, poor Bo, this is not Bo's episode. You follow Bo back upstairs to Buddy's dressing room. Which, as I'm going back through this summary, I realize we spend a lot of time in Buddy's dressing room, but it didn't seem like that during the episode. Bo asks if he can have access to his window, and I think Buddy thinks that he's about to throw himself out and kill himself. But Bo's like, no, I just want to take a nap on the fire escape, which raises the question of how often guest stars have just like gone to the Muppet Show and seen Bo sleeping on the fire escape outside of the dressing room and how that might have made them feel. Maybe that's where he was for all the first season. (laughs) That would make sense. You know, there's that that telltale cue of like, if only there was a song to cheer me up and buddy leads him in a duet of a song called you mustn't feel discouraged by Carol Burnett, which is basically the song version of it could always be worse, but it's hyper specific. When you're lying in the gutter, feeling just a bit unsure, just wait until tomorrow. You may be lying flat face down in a sewer. Buddy, think of all those sewers. Don't be afraid of the little rumble. No. What's that for goodness sake? It's nothing. Just remember one little rumble started the Frisco quake. What? Take it, boys. living on a park bench, eating grass cause I'm no dough. Your luck will change, manana. You may be six feet under, helping it grow. It is. And the central thesis is, you should definitely enjoy today, because there's a good chance tomorrow is going to suck even more. Don't <laughs> <go back. laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a messed up song. And it's also, he sings kind of like Sinatra. Mm. He's kind of doing it, because he's not really a singer. But he's, so he's kind of doing a Sinatra impression, I think. But, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> the song's really funny. It's nice, and, it, and it works, too. It, like, gets him perked up, you know. But even, yeah, at the end, is like, you know, you know, or, you know, be happy for this. You could be six feet under. You could be doing so much worse. Why aren't you being grateful? I have no idea how Buddy was as a parent, but I could absolutely see him doing that and being like, you think you've got it bad. Let me tell you. It could be way worse. I grew up during the Depression. We go to Veterinarian's Hospital, and the lights are completely out. So I've got a question, because the patient this this week is one of the electricians that was trying to fix the light. And I'm hoping that this guy came in after Bo was there. But if they sent in a professional and said, fuck it, we'll have Bo do it. Or screw it, we'll have Bo do it. They've got a corpse there. This guy, this Muppet doesn't move at all during the course of this sketch. I'm pretty yeah. sure he's dead. I think he's dead. I had the same note. He doesn't, he doesn't move. He doesn't laugh. They never, they only show his face once. Like, yeah, I think he's dead. I think, I think Bob actually lost this one. This one was lost before it started. I never want to see the double decker bus ever again. I don't think it like our UK spot features a, a group of British whatnot stringing a or singing a song called a transport of delight. It's the same double decker bus that we've seen at least like two or three times now. And I don't, it doesn't add, I get that it's a UK spot. Maybe it's just that I'm not part of the target audience, but yeah, this one's not on Disney plus I had to watch this on the Nickelodeon copies. Uh, it's fine, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's going in a different direction this, this time. That's all I got. So you go backstage. Hey, uh, Chad. Mm-hmm. You've seen a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. You ever seen The Last Dragon? No, I have not. I have not. Oh, 
this joke's going to fall flat. Okay. I'm going to say it anyway for the, anyone in the audience that has seen it. Dr. Bunsen Honeydew, ever the pragmatist, um, is genuinely trying to be helpful by enforcing manual labor. We'll get back to that in a second. He shows that he has got a giant portable beaker-powered generator, which is basically one of those like hyper-treadmills that you would have for a cat or something. Um, and Beaker is expected to run on this in order to generate electricity. When Beaker does this, his eyes light up. A large part of The Last Dragon featured the main character, Leroy Green, a.k.a. Bruce Leroy, trying to find the glow, which is basically Barry Gordon's, uh, Barry Gordy's version of going Super Saiyan before Super Saiyan was a thing. Separate conversation. But... The second that Beaker's lights or eyes lit up, I just couldn't stop laughing. Because the last dragon theme start, started playing in my head. Oh, I see. I see. And you've just got Beaker there running with light up eyes. Also, poor Beaker. This is, yeah, this is one of Bunsen's more die. Well, it, it gets worse. It's absolutely going to get worse. It's absolutely going to get worse. But a Beaker power generator, yeah, that's a little... We, uh, I also don't believe that those skinny legs could power the entire theater. Sorry. With the proper motivation, they probably could. But more on that Maybe. in a minute. Yeah. Um, we go back to Buddy's dressing room, which, to be fair, if the lights have been on and off, being in the dressing room probably seems like one of the safest places to be as a guest star. Miss Piggy comes in, and Buddy, having been aware that Miss Piggy is some level of master of karate, he's got a couple of like wooden boards set up for him to break. He asks Miss Piggy if she would like to give him a, a demonstration of anything, at which point Miss Piggy says that she's a pink belt. I'm going to leave that one alone. But Buddy, here's the thing that I, I don't understand about Buddy, because Buddy knows that Miss Piggy can do something. But he, he decides that he's going to insult her anyway, and maybe he just thought that he was safe because the lights were going out. But he makes a couple of references to Lard. He does. And the thing is, Miss Piggy gives him a chance. She gives him a chance to change what he said. He had a chance to pivot. This was a weird, mean moment. It was. I didn't understand. Like It wasn't motivated by anything. He just I, said, good thing you can't see lard, that lard doesn't grow in the dark. And you're like, that doesn't even mean anything. It's not a play on words. It's not a joke. It's not, it doesn't mean anything. So it's just like a mean comment. I thought, I don't know. I thought it was it, kind of you're, dumb. You're not wrong. Um, he gets his comeuppance pretty quickly, but. Oh yeah. And that's, and that's fine. She smacks him for it, but I just meant uh, writing wise. I felt like it, it felt unmotivated. So Chad, if you're experiencing power outages, what might inspire you to put on sunglasses? Hangover. Maybe that's what was going on with our friend, the Swedish chef. Why is he wearing sunglasses? I don't know. It's very strange. It's super strange. <laughs> like, I've don't... never seen his eyes. Like, he's got built-in sun blockers with those bushy, bushy eyebrows. I, I, I don't know why he's wearing sunglasses. It's possible that his future is that bright. <laughs> Maybe he found them in Elton John's dressing room. That could be it. Uh, and this is how the chef really is. They tried to wake him up from his nap. But this is where Bunsen, that son of a bitch. Yeah, Bunsen knew. Bunsen always knew what he was doing. Um, the lights start to flicker again because I guess Beaker's getting tired. Yeah. Uh, since he's been running hard enough to power the entire theater for at least 10 minutes. Um, but the power starts to go out again. And Bunsen, ever the pragmatist, decides that he's going to put the generator into overdrive by putting an angry tiger in there with Beaker. Yes. Gets him running faster. Gotta go fast. At some point, Beaker is going to die a horrible death, and Bunsen's going to be sitting there like, I don't understand what happened. What could have possibly gone wrong? While thinking it's perfectly fine to throw an angry and probably hungry tiger in there with his lab assistant slash lover? Beaky-poo. Uh, it's always so uncomfortable when he says that. His beekeepoo. 
There's like a weird power dynamic thing. <laughs> there kind of is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in this case, he, he just, he, he, he just unleashes a tiger on him intentionally. Uh, this is even an, an accident. This is intentional. To be fair, most of the accidents probably aren't accidents. The Stanley Kubrick fan in me would say, yeah, but it works. <laughs> oh, oh, get, the, get the results that you want. Yeah. Is that. Who cares if you who cares if you shatter Shelley Duvall as a person? I like Shelley Duvall. She gave me shows about fairy tales when I was a kid. I like Shelley Duvall too. And even if I didn't, that's a terrible thing to do to someone. <laughs> but we we follow the Swedish chef on stage where he is making a lighter than air souffle. This this bit begins like so many other Swedish chef bits begin, where he's just fiddling with something and then he throws it backward. But there's this great moment because he's got a basket full of vegetables and it's just sideways and facing the camera. And then as things start flying out, he's like, oh, I'm going to shift the angle and then float and then throw it. He starts working on the lighter than air souffle. Now, I've never had souffle. It looks like a loaf of bread here. Am I missing something? I don't think I've ever had a souffle either. I mean, it's mostly air. I mean, yeah, it's kind of like a loaf of bread. There's a lot of air in it, right? Like there is in bread. I don't, I don't know how a souffle works. All I know is in sitcoms, it's always what the wives are fixing and they always fall down. And the wives that can't cook very well, the, the thing that, that shows you in the sitcom that she can't cook very well is that her souffles implode. Hmm. That, was a, that was a signifier in like the 80s. On sitcoms. Boss is coming over. Wife's making a souffle right before the boss gets there. If it's mostly air, why would... Uh, I'm not going to try to make that pragmatic. I don't I don't know exactly how it works. I don't even know what's in it. I think it's got eggs. So the chef starts... Or he brings in the uh, lighter than air souffle. And you know what? Both Bunsen and the chef have been pretty effective this episode. That souffle is absolutely lighter than air. And so it rises and rises and floats up toward the ceiling. At which point, the chef, who just has a bow and arrow handy. I thought he was going for the blunderbuss. He always goes for the blunderbuss, but maybe he just didn't want to pull buckshot out of the souffle. But he shoots it, and it it comes down in a flat and deflated sense, at which point he just sort of calls it the frisbee souffle. Which, yeah, that makes sense, unless you really feel like biting into air. I thought the punchline was a little weak. Would you say that it fell flat? I wouldn't. Uh, you're the dad. You're supposed to appreciate the dad joke. <laughs> we, we get ready for our finale where Buddy finally meets Animal. And I was wondering when it was going to happen. But the best part about it is Floyd's leading Animal by on a chain. And he activates Animal like he's the Manchurian candidate. Like he's just Animal. And then you just see Animal's eyes brighten up. And he just attacks Buddy, who does not employ any of his judo skills whatsoever. This is the perfect time for it. And he starts screaming, kill, kill, kill again. He's done that before. Kill! 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 Yeah, he's ready. He absolutely has. We go on stage, and now that I know that you don't like drums, I kind of want to know what you thought of this particular bit. Oh, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah, they're basically playing horse. It's a drum battle, but like... Animal and Buddy have a drum battle. They never declare a winner, but it's pretty decisive that it, it was Buddy. Oh, Buddy kicks his ass. I know that. You know that. Animal knows that. The only problem is... Animal's still programmed for kill. Oh, yeah, yeah, Animal. And just beams Eddie, or beams Buddy with it. Yeah, he does. Animal's not a very good loser in this one. No. Gets his ass kicked and then uh, sends a projectile at him. I think it was a snare. But, but we get to our clothes. Buddy's being a pretty good sport about it. He just says he's glad it wasn't a piano battle, which, I don't know, Rolf would be a much better loser than Animal would, just by default. He didn't throw his piano at Johnny Cash. He probably wanted to. What'd you think of uh, Buddy Rich? I liked it. I liked him a lot. I, I thought he was a lot of fun. I'm sure having read some of the, like, there were personality clashes that he had a number of people, including Sinatra, so maybe he might not have been the nicest person to be around all the time, but he was a hell of a performer just within this episode and out, outside of it. Really, really good. Next time, it's a wrap. Next time, it's the end. Oof. The end of the Muppet Show.
episode number 523 with my girlfriend, Linda Ronstadt. She's having a little bit of a resurgence because of uh, them using one of her songs on The Last of Us. And episode 524 with my James Bond, Roger Moore. Not the James Bond I prefer, the James Bond I grew up with. And that will be the end of Muppet Show season five. And then we'll be back with our um, best of episode. And we'll take a little break and then we will move on to the future. What happens after the Muppet Show? What what uh, what does Jim do next? So we'll we'll start watching what Jim does next. LunaticDaring.com, at LunaticDaring. While you're at it, uh, leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. It helps out a lot. So until next time, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. And uh, thank you for listening. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. What kind of show would you call that? Frankly, I'd call it quits. Quits! Quits! quits. <laughs>